You are listening to a discussion born in the Christian ghetto. Welcome, everyone. We're thank you for joining us today in the ghetto. Um, I'm joined today by Montana Classical College, and uh, we're planning on having a discussion on Christianity and vitalism, specifically initiated by a tweet that I had um, put out. I saw a, a tweet come across my feed of um, it described showed a lifestyle of um, surfers, windsurfers. There was horses running on the beach. There was a girl in a bikini. Um, just sort of typical 20-something, um, adventure-seeking, lust-for-life fun. But what I tried to interesting was the heading that said, this is my ideology. And that kind of sparked something. And so I fired off a tweet, which I didn't say, but Montana has up on his screen. So maybe you can read that for us. <clears throat> yeah, so... Uh, Beach Boy 007 had said, this is my ideology above his video. And then you quoted it and said, what? Catering to self-absorbed, largely indolent, upper middle class kids spending all their time seeking fun. This is our society now. And because of these people, our total fertility rate is plummeting and giving our leadership the excuse they need to replace you with immigrants. Good job. Uh, and then there's Big Tuna. <laughs> hey, guys. All right. Yeah, so you're going to say Montana? <laughs> I didn't. Know. Did you want me to read the second and third, or just leave it? Sure. First? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, read the second and third because I think I went on a little bit more there. Yeah. So then, Wandering Panda had replied, "Yeah, but this video is scratching at it the same way the poor kid latches onto skateboarding, the infantry working the rankest horse. God, uh, in parentheses, incompletely is found in the gap between control and destruction. There's a form of holiness in saying life is for the living." And your response to this, which sort of followed the initial tweet, was perhaps, but civilizations are built by people who take up duty and responsibility, who are disciplined and purposeful. Youthful fun is all good, but as an ideology, you cannot build or renew a society with it. And then Beach Boy, I think you found a, another Beach Boy <clears throat> tweet that kind of encapsulated uh, what he was doing, where he said, any moment might be our last. Everything is more beautiful because we're doomed. You will never be lovelier than you are now. And then you had said... I suppose if your outlook is nihilistic, this would be your ideology, civilizational suicide. Yeah, because he's got this picture of this guy looking out the window with a gun laying on the bed, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the, like, that, um, I forget, it's, I think it's that Japanese philosopher, right, who um, did end up committing seppuku. Um, and I'm trying to remember his name now. Mashima, I think it is. Mishima? Yukio Mishima. Mishima, yeah. And so I think, it's probably drawing on something like that, that, um, you know, the, this, you're living in that intense final moment right before you end it all. And, you know, in some ways that's the, the, the kind of um, authentic materialist life, right. Where there's no, there really is no purpose in life. So you suck the marrow out of what you've got, you live it to the fullest. And then in the end um, you, you authentically honor that you kill yourself. And that was, um, and so, you know, if 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 that is exactly, you know, the kind of thing that he's keying off on, and he may not realize all of the implications, because some of this stuff, you know, it's images, people think it's cool. And so, you know, it's fun to tool around with these things. But I was playing off the, the dichotomy between Kierkegaard's either or, right? So there is the life of the aesthete who is, 
you know, looking to maximize every feeling, to feel everything deeply, you know. And there's that that whole scene of the seducer in in uh, um, in either or, where he seduces. I think she's an 18 year old girl, and he spends at length going on about you know how he's enjoying the whole process, and and he's getting into you know. And and the whole thing is is the emotion, the feeling, the angst, every living into the moment of seducing this young woman, right? And then, you know, you flip to the ethical where you're in married life and now you're doing your duty, you're building something, you have wife, children, job, all the rest of these responsibilities. And I know Kierkegaard also then has his religious mode in which you know you pursue the one thing which is God alone over and above everything else. Um, but I was drawing that contrast between the two because I think in many ways um, there there is I think in our in our society there's these these two modes really. One is and and both are a response to a materialist foundation, or at least even if, you know, there, as Stephen often will say that, you know, saying you're a materialist is really just a way of masking your true religious commitments. But even so, if you're claiming a kind of materialist worldview, um, then on the one hand, you have the, the regime, which is, has it harnessed the power of the machine to implement utopia through, you know, um, through human progress. So this idea that we can engineer, um, we can engineer utopia through the machine if we are, you know, diligent and careful. But when you watch it, what it ends up being is kind of a bland, lifeless, it's, it's brutalism writ large, right? And so you get in response to that, um, something that you know that trend in, in in the vitalism to say that no we as human beings have spirit they reach back into um older mythology and to say hey we look you know that we can we can grab hold of these old ideas these old spirit and then we can revivify ourselves by grabbing hold of the lust of life so we can make ourselves beautiful by taking care of our bodies we can lift we can eat well and um, and then we can uh, eschew all of the 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 life of you know the dutiful uh, ethical person you know family job all the rest of it and we're just going to go out and we're going to conquer like a, you know this is I think the bad thing we're going to be a band of pirates who are out roving around taking women for ourselves you know um, and upping the f rate you know the whole the whole thing but. There is in this thing, really, and this is something that Augusto Del Noche notes, is that vitalism is a response to a materialist world in a sense of saying that if there is nothing else but the material, well, what is there then? Well, you then try to grab hold of the fullness of every moment and pack everything into like a lust for life. So you want pleasure, you want um you know, to be, you know, you're, you're basically grabbing hold of your own vitality as the center of, of meaning in life. And so by enhancing this vitality, um, you then make yourself more, you, you maximize, you know, who you are as a human being and, and your own meaning for yourself and so forth. And I basically said, you know, that if you're doing that, um, you can't at the same time build a civilization, right? So in that sense, now, I, 
I think that BAP would argue that he's not really trying to build a civilization, that what he's trying to do is force the contradictions of the current regime to collapse it. Um, and so, okay, fair enough. Maybe that's what you're doing. But, you know, coming from a Christian perspective, Augustine, maybe we can get into that a little bit more because I've been rambling here, um, that, um, you know, looking at the nature of, from an Augustine perspective, as, as evil as entropic, then anything that works against that entropic nature of, of evil to corrupt what is good, I think ultimately ends up being a good thing. And so, um, yeah, no, I don't know if it's necessarily, like, you know, you can talk about, oh, civilization is the mark of Cain, but in a sense, building human society, building the community, all of these things take effort, they take work, they take discipline, and they take a commitment to a larger purpose, which, you know, a surfer boy lifestyle really doesn't, um, lend itself to. So maybe I'll stop there maybe because you had some notes that you had things you wanted to say, Montana. Yeah, no, this is interesting. I mean, so maybe, maybe I'll start back at the tweet and then work out. Yeah, kind of sure. Like, um, so, okay. Yeah. So you have beautiful people surfing and, and I wondered if like their, the actions that you see in this like 44 second video in some ways, I don't, don't necessarily at least strike me as pointing to necessarily a hedonistic lifestyle in as much as I don't like a lot of those people were doing things that like, I just, I don't know that I could physically do as far as like, you know, skiing down a mountain and going off like a big jump. Uh, maybe I could go windsurfing. I don't know. It's not obvious to me. I have but, done a bunch of those things. You know, well, so it's like, they're, they're fun. Like yeah. I, I was an adrenaline junkie in my younger years. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. So, but, but it seemed to me that there's even like a, some kind of asceticism that would be required for vitalism. It might be, well, it's obviously, I guess, would be different than Christian asceticism. But a sort of like regime of self-discipline would be required in order to be as beautiful as those people were and to like take care, you know, to, to sort of take care of those tasks or do those things. Um, so that's like... Hey, one... You're saying they're just not spontaneously emerging. There's a certain level of commitment and and discipline required to just even do what they're doing in the video yeah yeah and and i i hear you like on the objecting to saying like this is my ideology to sort of take that as a literal statement is kind of crazy because it, it seems like it would be radically incomplete um you know like where's god in it like where are the families that produced like the beautiful people the work that went into that and you know how do you create the living traditions that would shape a small community um so there's like a lot of things that it doesn't have in a way, but I wonder if, I mean, to some extent, maybe it's kind of a, a joke and I'm not saying that you're insensitive to the fact that it could be a little bit funny, but it seems like he's kind of providing a snapshot or something like that of what it means to be beautiful or powerful or daring um, and kind of careless. And it seems to me like it's like an exhortation or a resting vision of what could be in a way like the tip of the iceberg as we were just kind of talking about. And there's one quotation uh, from Bronze Age mindset. It's near the end in Aphorism 76. But he says this, and maybe Peach Boy had something like this in mind. Um, I'm bored by I ideology and by word chopping. The images I post speak for themselves and point to a primal order that is felt by all in a physical sense. Um, so it does, it does seem like a lot of what the vitalists want to do is just like say, hey, look, this is beautiful and you don't need somebody to tell you it's beautiful. You don't need to read a plaque next to this that will like explain why it's beautiful. You somehow just intuitively sense that that's the case. And it seems like our regime has been asking us to say that ugly things are beautiful. Um, I th I th oh, there's like some joke I'm recalling like where something is like, 
like that giant uh, black woman Lizzo or something that people will say like she's so beautiful. And then if you were to call tell any woman like, hey, you look like Lizzo, they would be super offended. You know, they would hate that. But they, <laughs> they kind of like get tricked by these abstractions or something. Like I don't know exactly how to say it. Uh, I don't know, just like some sort of like egalitarian guilt drags on them, such that they don't really want to allow themselves to say that anything's ugly or that anything, well, other than, you know, racism is bad. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll leave off on that. Cause I have one other point that I think, I, I, cause I think part of what you were doing cryptos really drove home a kind of contradiction. Well, I think I can resolve at least one contradiction in vitalism or an apparent one, but maybe I'll stop rambling and see if you have anything to say to what I said so far before I go to the next step. Well, I was going to see if, if, if BT had anything to say um, or you're content to listen for now. I'm content to listen. I, I was going to circle back to your Kierkegaard bit later because I have a C.S. Lewis quote about that, as always. Okay, there you go. Well, well that's good. Yeah, it, the thought that jumped out at me then is, um, is Bap drawing then on, um, it, it trying to pull the metaphysical in back into the back door? Like, is he grasping it as saying that we live in, you know, wrapped in a metaphysical world of the forms. And what we're trying to do is to revivify the forms, to grasp at the beautiful again, to grasp at, you know, the heroic again. Because um, that's a, in, in that regard then, because I think at that point, what you're doing is you're trying to make a specific, like once you get into the area of metaphysics, you're making a specific almost religious claim, right? That there is, an order in creation or an order in the universe. Let's, you know, maybe um, not necessarily frame it in, in Christian terms that way, but um, that there's an order in the universe um, and we can grasp at it and reveal it again. And this order in the universe is um, destabilizing the, the, the regime. Um, Cause I, you know the 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 sense that you get from from following back on on Twitter is that you know it's not so much that he doesn't have a lot of use for Christianity, but it's more the Christianity as he sees it in the world around him so much, and not necessarily Christianity per se. If that if if I'm if I may be reading that correctly. Oh yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean. Like if you listen to like Caribbean rhythms, like look at the end of like the William Wheelwright essay, the kind of conversation they have about Christianity there is like pretty interesting. I think Wheelwright has a lot of cool things to say about Christianity. And then, I mean, he had like a bishop on, I think somebody who like thought the SSPX church was like too soft, like somebody who needed to go even more traditional than that, uh, Bishop Williamson. And that was interesting. And and I mean, he was unbelievably respectful of him, I, I would say, e even when the bishop was like very clearly kind of saying, like, there's no way around being a Christian. You will go to hell uh, if you're not a Christian. And like, you know, uh, vital because you could say like at the deepest fundamental level, vitalism is a kind of prideful self-assertion that like human reason or intuition alone is all that's required in order to live well. And that we don't really need the word of God. Mm. Like at the most fundamental level, it seems like there can't be a theoretical synthesis at bottom of Christianity and vitalism, but it seems like there's a lot of practical possibilities. And, and just like, I, I was just like reading the end of bronze age mindset again, to get ready for this. And he's also very clear there that like Christians are like one of the, the, the only kind of bastion against the common enemy 
And so like, you're an idiot if you are kind of going out of your way to insult serious Christians. But I think you're right that he's manifestly harsh with those Christians who've been kind of co-opted by the American civil religion into like turning Christianity into some kind of like disgusting skin suit, um, which is obviously like well, I, people in the Christian. Well, no, but it, or technology or, or my, one of my fundamental critiques is technologizing, right. It, you know, turning it into a reproducible technology that you can then, you know, um, institution building um, as opposed to, genuine faith expression, right? Mm -hmm. One of the, the the things that struck me as we were, you know, in the period between when the tweet hit and today is the, you know, a criminally underread book in, in scripture is that of Ecclesiastes, right? And I think one of the things that, because that, you know, where you, um, I'm trying to find the passage here, where he undertakes, um, you know, I thought in my heart, this is chapter two, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good, but that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards and made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and treasure and kings and life and provinces. I acquired men and women singing in harem as well and the delights of the heart of men. I became greater than far anyone in Jerusalem before me. All, all this my wisdom stayed with me, right? And he continues on, um, you know, I, that he even, you know, turned to madness and, and, and so forth. Um, and all of it ends up being meaningless. Even the, some of the stuff that I was talking about, you know, building family and house and, and pleasure and fun and everything. And he ends up, it's, it's kind of funny. It's a, it's almost a sort of small ball version of life. You know, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. And this too, I see is from the hand of God for without him, who can eat and find enjoyment. And so there is this sense, and he comes back to this, I think four or five times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, that there is a sense of, I hate to say living in the moment, but that when you're doing life, that you just do the simple things, but you do them before God. And then by doing them before God, they fill with meaning in that regard. And it's it's all of that that you lose when you're trying to pursue all these other things, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. And I think it actually ties in pretty well with what I'd hoped to talk about um, so like that is to say, it seems like, uh, in Bronze Age mindset, generally speaking, I don't know if this holds in every passage or that it's like totally coherent, but it almost seems like to me, like he's talking to like two different audiences at the same time. Um, and maybe not necessarily fully like in a Straussian way, we don't have to talk about that, but, um, like, I guess like somebody like Alcibiades on one hand or like in a mm -hmm. recent Green Rhythms episode, like 
him talking about wishing some of Bolsonaro's generals in Brazil when it seemed like maybe the election was done dirty. I don't know enough about elections to really know, but like for the sake of argument, let's just say it, it's possible that that one went poorly or something like that. So if you just accept like an if then kind of thing, like if that election was stolen, it would follow that like any general worth their salt should try to do something about that. If like the constitutional framework's been broken by your enemies, then like you should restore order. And he was sort of almost kind of indignant on that episode of like, why didn't one of them like read my book? Or like, why didn't somebody see that like they needed to do this? And it seems like that kind of person, the person who is the man for that moment is somebody who like maybe doesn't need a kind of fully thought out ideology or like they don't need some kind of like pamphlet or something that like if, if Trump failed to do things as well as he could in the United States, I don't think like reading Plato's Republic more closely or ever at all in his life, like would have assisted him. <laughs> Like he's probably the man that he is in some sense because he's not that learned. That's just not the type of person that he is. But he has a kind of charisma and impetuosity and in some cases courage that I think not that many people possess. So I think on one hand, the book is addressed to that type of person or to somebody much better than Trump. Um, who And that those would be the kind of people who should ignore their families, should be directed totally outside of the domestic sphere and who might have to do I don't know, sort of incredible things in order to break open the iron prison so that like there's less suffocation and more freedom or something like that. But then the other audience would be like me. I'll just like, just not speak for anybody else and just like say me, I'm so far away from Alcibiades. It's not even close. And near the end of the book, he also talks about starting scouting organizations, doing things like at the local level, like getting involved in like city government, making it so that your particular area is like as free as it can be. And I think like some of the piratical stuff, I don't think he really thinks, I don't know that most people are that serious about it. Most people aren't well-equipped. Like just because you're lifting doesn't mean that you're ready to be part of a piratical brotherhood. Like that's a huge step, uh, obviously. But so I don't know. So I just wonder if like, if you look at the book from that frame of reference, I think that in a way he's like, well, yeah, you probably should, if you have a family, you should be good to them. You should care about them. But if you are a man of like high vision and sort of like, talents that are unusual maybe you'd be better off uh i guess what's the best way to put it i don't dispersing like your power elsewhere that it should be directed in a different kind of way i I suppose but i think that resolves like a lot of things as far as like yeah how what kind of guidance should you take from the book because i'm not i'm not i'm I'm not elsebiety so i think a lot of his suggestions aren't for me well it's interesting because there is just as you were talking there, Montana, there's there is a a a, a Christian, um, anal- analogous Christian sort of frame because Paul, um, in talking about whether someone should or shouldn't get married, you know, he was living with the urgency that you know Christ is going to come back at any time, right? And that that's that's the thing. And so he says, well, you know, if you are content not to get married, so let's say you're engaged to a woman, you you haven't consummated the marriage. And you're content that you don't need to be married. Well, then you know you're better to commit yourself to Christ because once you get married, your interest will be divided, right? You're, you'll be divided between Christ and between the needs of your wife. And so there is something to that sense where you know the great man, you know, maybe being called, um, you know, should set behind some of those those usual things. But you know, within a Christian frame, then you're also setting behind, you know leaving a patrimony for yourself and, and those types of things as well too, right? If you're going to do it quote unquote properly and ethically. Um, 
so there there is that sense of of seizing the moment you know and and like i look you know god gives us a series of gifts he gives us a series of talents um and you know i think a lot of us feel acutely this this sense that um being enframed in a technological world squanders much of the energy of our life you know I run, I fish, I like to get out into the bush and, and just do those types of things because um, it is it is good to get away. That's sort of my, you know, piratical act is just to get out into the bush and be, you know, leave my phone, behind. get away far enough away from that there's no cell towers near enough that I can pick up a signal, even if I want to, that the, just the phone sort of is just dead. And it's basically useful as a camera to take pictures of fish when you've caught them. Right. So it's, I guess for me, it's that sense of, um, and maybe it's teleological, is a sense of, of to what end is your life directed? Right. It, like, why the question is, is why are you trying to enhance yourself in your body? Is it, it you know, and it, I guess from a Christian perspective, any end that is, lower than being directed for the purposes of God and, 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 and so forth is, is secondary, right? Now that seems like, oh, you know, that's high religious vision, you know, but as you know, the, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is saying too, that you don't have to build palaces and conquer kingdoms to be properly oriented in your life. Um, and a lot of us are not properly oriented in our lives because we don't eat and drink and do our work mindful of the fact that we're doing them before the creator. I think it's right? interesting so, that you bring up, I think it's interesting that you bring up Paul and the don't marry section, because one, I think that's one of the only places in the, in all of Paul's letters where he kind of like, uh, not prefaces it, but at the end, he kind of like gives a caveat, which is like, now, uh, I think that I have the spirit when I say these things. Which is which yes, is he does that in one other place that's similar where he says, you know, I don't have a specific word from the Lord, but as one who is trustworthy, mm -hmm. um, this is what I say to you. But you're right. Yeah. yeah. And then and then, you know, so that's just an interesting caveat. But also we can just we can go straight to Christ. Um, and Christ says in the Gospels, whoever does not hate his father, mother, sister and brother is not worthy to be called my disciple. And, you know, the the understanding in the church tradition that I'm from is not, does God actually want you to hate your family? No, but it means that if there are temporal loves that obscure the eternal love, then those loves are, are not only not good, they're like an, you're in sin. And so um, it's, it's interesting to compare the vitalist perspective because, you know, sometimes paganism rhymes with the truth. It's not the truth, but it rhymes. And uh, it's like, also the additional fact is that God can anoint pagans to do things uh, when his people, either the Jews in the Old Testament or the church now, um, wouldn't do. And there's perfect examples of this over and over again, like Nebuchadnezzar being anointed by God, and he gets arrogant and thinks it's his own power and God strikes him down. Later, God uses Cyrus the Great to have the temple rebuilt. And so there are, there are themes in the Bible that suggest we can be okay with taking, taking cues from pagans occasionally. Like, like he says, uh, when, when the Pharisees, when Jesus is being paraded in on a donkey in Jerusalem 
And the Pharisees say to him, they hear everyone saying, calling him Lord and laying down the palm branches at the feet of his donkey as he walks in. And the Pharisees say, hey, do you not hear your disciples? They're blaspheming. Stop them. Do something to, to stop them from blaspheming the name of God. And then Jesus says, I tell you that if they would not cry out for me, the rocks would cry out. And sometimes the the rocks are used symbolically to represent pagans. So there, there is an interesting, this is an analogy that um, one of my philosophy profs at a Christian university used with me uh, or with us, I guess, is he talked about the treasures of the Egyptians, right? As, as, as the Israelites fled Egypt, the, the Egyptians, you know, God caused the Egyptians to heap them up full of treasures on the way out the door, right? Well, there was two uses put for those treasures. The first was they made a calf, so idolatry. And the second, it was, you know, the second the second use is that it was turned into the items for the tabernacle. Right. So you have these two, in a sense, two uses of of what and so he talked about this idea of the treasures of the Egyptians, is that you know, the, the you're not really looking at was a way to put it. Um, I know the Catholics have a have a similar idea that you know the truth is is very close as it comes. You know, the closer you are to Christ and the Church, the closer you are to the purity of the truth. And as you go out from those rings, the truth is still there, but it becomes more clouded, more twisted, more distorted as you go forward. Right. So, and this is one of the things that I've always appreciated in very smart non Christians is that. There's often a lot of things you can learn, and this is why somebody like Bap is respectful of the Christian faith and not a, a quote-unquote a mocker, and who's smart is often worth paying attention to, even if in the end, like I look at it and say, like, hey, um, you have to ultimately, I guess you can learn from it, but in the end, you have to ultimately reject the the overall, like, this is not going to save you, so to speak, right? Um so, you know, you can learn from things even like Feuerbach or Freud or, or many of these, you know, atheist Eastern religions that you can, you can learn from. But you have to realize that um, these treasures of the Egyptians, that they can lead you to idolatry, but they can also be refined and, you know, um, and then because the truth, I mean, um, the truth has being and the lies are basically twistings of the truth. Right. So if you can disentangle the lie, I mean, Satan, when he lies, likes to use scripture. Right. So it's oftentimes he's using the words and quoting them directly, but then framing them in a way that, um, you know, um, inverts them and turns them against God. So I guess that's part of the whole thing of ideas. So like, what do you do with it? like, you know, don't necessarily be afraid of these things. But in the end. Um, as long as you understand your Christian faith, you can borrow and use them, but you know, you probably don't want to become a quote unquote hardcore Baptist per se. Yeah, I wonder like two related points to some of the things you you brought up. I think especially at the beginning, like the question that you, you and Tuna both brought up about, you know, hating your mother and father, uh, but but not really hating them, but just being sensitive to when temporal loyalties or concerns draw you away from like the thing which is most needful. Um, is it like, I don't like in uh, Plato's Laches, it's like a, a conversation where Socrates talks to two fathers and these two fathers, their fathers were awesome generals. Like they were highly successful, 
but they were out on campaign for most of the children's lives. Um, and so that, that makes it so that they, they didn't really amount to much and they kind of feel this deep disappointment and shame at kind of being in the shadow of their fathers and not really knowing what to do about it. But then the thing that they think, okay, well, if we can't be great, what's available to us? Well, we can try to help our sons become great. So they, they seek out two generals in the city to ask them, you know, what kind of things that their sons should learn in order to become most excellent. And then eventually start to see Socrates as maybe a better guide as far as that's concerned. But that seems to present like this tragic difficulty of sometimes, I don't know, I guess like your city being in need. And so uh, a man having to go out away from domestic matters out there into the wild in a sense and not being able to be a good father. And then it's precisely that action that makes it so that their children might be bad. Or this could also be kind of like an Odyssean problem. Um, now, Telemachus maybe ultimately turns out to be okay, but it's not through Odysseus's doing. You know, he's he can't be an equally good father and an equally good adventurer, an equally good father and an equally good soldier. Like, there's just like sort of like trade-offs in terms of excellence. And so I'm curious. So the first question is like how to think about handling those things when it comes to being as excellent as possible for your community or something like that versus attending to your familial duties on. So that'd be the first question. And then the second question is I'm kind of curious if like, it, like, so you could say vitalists at bottom or at root in a way or atheists in a sense. I mean, I think Babs metaphysics in, there's a lot to say about that, I suppose. Like he, maybe he thinks that like everything is mysterious, that there's a kind of Heraclitean fire that's like at the center of everything. And in that sense, like, I don't know, like there's a lot of mystery and anything could come to be, but and progressives, I guess you could say, certainly most of the time are atheists, either in their own self-belief or functionally, I guess. And But I wonder if like vitalists converting will be much, much better or more interesting church members than a progressive who comes in. I don't know. At least all the Christians. I would all, think so. Yeah. Yeah. I would, they, I, would, I would definitely think so. And, and I think precisely because they're a little bit, although maybe you disagree, but a little bit freer, well, maybe in many cases, a lot freer from regime pieties that would like prevent you from being a good Christian. I guess the, the main reason that I uh, am highly interested in Bap's thought is because when I read Bronze Age Mindset for the first time, I, th I thought that I was pretty free from regime pieties. I thought I was like free from a lot of egalitarian concerns and reading it. I was like, whoa, I'm not, I'm not, my mind is not as free as I thought it was in any book that could help me realize that my mind was less liberated than I thought it was. is just like, I owe like a debt of gratitude that like reopened like a lot of questions and things. So that's like, the, have, yeah. Yeah. I have read a lot of, I've read books like that too. It, it's like, you know, but as you're talking, there's a couple things that, that just popped in mind. One is the sort of the combination of, of um, like Paul Ricoeur, you know, oneself is another that you don't, you, you can't know yourself as yourself. You, you know yourself as mirrored back to you by somebody else who sees you from the outside. Right. And, um, so there's that, but then there's also, I think it's Ortega y Gasset who argues that the philosopher never really belongs to his own community. So part of the role of the philosopher is to stand outside. So to have a foot in and a foot out of the community. So he has a, he has a foot in so that he, in some sense, belongs, but he has the foot out in a sense that he has to stand outside the community and observe it and then report back to the community. So we were like, th this comparison was given to us in, in pastoral training that you will never truly be part of the community because 
if you have a foot in, you also have a foot out because you've got to watch them and tell them about themselves, the things that they can't see in themselves, right? So there is this value in somebody who comes from outside of you. You know, you often get this thing on Twitter, you know, like, well, how can you tell us what, you know, what it means to be an American? You're not from here. And it's like, okay, but I, I hate to tell you this, but I can see some things about you that you can't see some things about yourselves because you're too close to yourself that you just don't see yourself at all, right? And then, and I think that goes goes with anybody, right? So there is this sense where um, there is, and 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 the other thought I had sort of relates to the the two major formulations of our relation to being, you know, one being Plato and, and hierarchy and forms, and then the other being Heidegger, right? And so you, you, the, the notion of like, you, you'd say like the, the general, right? So th that general in relating to the forms has two archetypes that he could be embracing. So the question you have to, you would have to ask, say from a Christian perspective, is you know that like I'm I'm of the mind, I'm not of the mind that you know God has a special plan for me, right? That I'm more of the John 5, 19. God is at work and you watch him and then you join in his work, right? So I'm more of the mind that we have there's a static world hierarchy of being and you realize yourself by embracing the archetypes that God lays in front of you, right? So you have to ask what is the archetype that God is asking me to step into and to embrace? So now you might have different modes at different times and you might realize, and, and you, you realize, and this is a thing that Eliade talks about, right? That you realize yourself by living into the archetypes. And this is how the pre-modern person found himself as he lived into the archetypes and he, he then becomes the, in part the person in the story. So the great general then, becomes who he is by living into the story. But the sacrifice that he has to make is that he cannot live fully into the archetype of the father. So the question is, is you know, at what point can you embrace both archetypes or do you have to, and fundamentally is your your telos, your end, the, the, the great general and the price that you have to pay, the sacrifice you have to make is, you know, you sacrifice your children for, for being the general. It's a, a kind of harsh way to say it, right? You sacrificed the well-being of your sons to be the great general. And then you wonder, you know, so now which archetype then is most important civilization? I mean, in that tweet, I made the thing the two, like, well, okay, what's most needful then is, well, you see in our thing when we're, our, our total fertility rate is under the, you know, reproduction and our society seems to be dying, that maybe in this moment we don't need generals we need fathers and mothers and families. So, you know, and that is at, at the moment, that's I think was the argument that I was making is that perhaps at this moment, the archetype that sits in front of us is the Kierkegaardian archetype of, uh, you know, the Kierkegaardian moment of doing our duty, of embracing the role of father, embracing the role of mother and raising your children and establishing communities because that's what's falling out around us. I mean, maybe we need generals and maybe somebody will be called into that role, but I wonder if the bulk of us are are, are open into a different role. And that, and that flips in there, I guess, the contrast to the, the Heideggerian mode, which I'm, there's a lot of truth in what Heidegger is saying, but 
we carry it to excess in that sense is that where the only thing that matters is authenticity. You know, in that sense, there there is no because if you combine it to a nominalist world that is functionally materialist, then there's 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 no archetypes, there's nothing out there. But yet Heidegger tells me I have to, you know, in order to find meaning, I have to throw myself onto the horizon of time. And so I have to um you know, there's an inner person that needs to get out and needs to be thrown on the horizon of time. And so whether that inner person, if I feel like I'm a man, but I'm in a body of a woman, I need to throw that and I need to be authentic to myself. And so we live in this culture where, um, and, and this is the thing that that, that Marcia Eliade talked about as the, the burden of history lays upon you. So you've got to, you know, find yourself. What does my life mean? I've got to, you know, who am I? And we've got this whole, whereas prior to that modern period, prior to this burden of history being placed upon you, um, you know, your life was largely presented to you. You were a farmer, you were a craftsman, you were the king, and you became who you were by fitting into the archetype as it was presented to you, if that makes sense. So I guess for me, that's that kind of, and that's, I think, somewhat of the the, the worldview that I think that I want to have people consider in that sense is like, you know, we've taken this notion of being authentic, of living on the edge, that lust for life, you know, um, that you have to just every experience has to be dramatic and full. And, you know, and in that sense, Kierkegaard's a steep, right? And that's kind of what we've modeled. So, so I have to throw myself onto the horizon of time. And, do that. and I'm like, no, maybe there are archetypes that need to present yourself that, you know, maybe what is really needful for you is to realize that, the archetype that God has laid in front of you is to be a husband, a father. Now, I know people, you know, like BAP would probably criticize you. You know, you're a wage, a wage slave supporting the system, you know, going in and working in your cubicle and blah, 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 blah. Now, there might be other options other than that to support your family and your thing. But I wonder if there is this re-embracing of just fulfillment in fitting the archetype. You know, you're a woman, you have a womb. Embrace the archetype of mother. You know that type of thing. Yeah, I, uh, Brian, Brian, the second part of your question there, like you were kind of talking about vitalists and whether they're, whether they're really atheists or potential converts. Mm -hmm. um, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, openly wondered in a couple private letters, and I believe, maybe it was in the, maybe it was in the Abolition of Man, but he openly wondered whether we would need to re-paganize people before we would re-Christianize them. In other words, the things that motivate the pagan a lot of the time are just twisted versions of the good thing. And in the screw tape letters, not to harp on Lewis too much, but that's, that's like that's my fine. area of expertise. But in the screw tape letters, screw tape is writing to Wormwood and screw tape says to him when advise because wormwood's like oh i'm gonna do this to tempt my subject my person that i'm tempting and screw tape warns him and says don't tempt him too much with pleasure because we didn't make the pleasures the pleasures are the creation of our enemy and since it's you know the devil is talking pleasure is a creation of god which is the insinuation there like and all the pleasures are um and even the worst pleasures are are just a broken version of the original good pleasure that, that and the pleasures that are eternal. And so, you know, the vilest, I think kind of following Brian, I think they'd actually, they, they are easier to 
to evangelize to than progressives because progressives have actually adopted the enemy religion of Christianity. They've adopted kind of an inversion of it where, you know, we love, but we don't love a particular, like, I think it's Dostoevsky who says, oh, you love the poor? Like, show me where they are, basically. Like, the poor, the homeless, people, society, humanity. Progressives don't, and then they turn around. And They're then, abstractions. Yes, they, they love abstractions. And they turn around and treat the people in their life like crap and have filthy mouths and cuss all the time. And there's, you know, so just on that note, like, I think, yeah, this is, this is this is fertile ground for for Christians to evangelize to, and so we should treat these arguments, even if they're presented in sort of the silly style that Bab does them. We should treat them really seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, tune is kind of funny. Like when I was talking to my uh, lifting buddy, who's like a SSPX Catholic, he uh, basically I think your comment now and the comment earlier about uh, Cyrus the Great Nebuchadnezzar, he literally when I was like telling him I was gonna you know talk to some people about this mm -hmm. He's like you have to say those things and then you said them so <laughs> oh, good um, great minds as they say of course yes. that that reflects better on me than it does on you because i'm coming up to your level <laughs> oh that's why there you go don't <laughs> yeah so, but, so it seems like <laughs> go ahead Mark. oh no, no go ahead um i'd lost my train of thought so i just i it's, as soon as we we interrupt each other just <laughs> vaporized yeah, well, so then, uh, maybe this will tie back. Uh, okay, yeah. So it seems like vitalism maybe is more productive of better psychic soil for converts and more salutary political effects. Like, I, not that, well, I don't know. It's kind of stupid to talk about, like, if Christians or vitalists were in charge of the American regime, because I don't know. Uh, it, like, it's hard to think about it at that level. And, and maybe, yeah, it's not helpful. But, but it seems to me that, like a vitalist regime, if such a thing could even be, if there's like some, I don't know, it seems like Bap thinks of like a military dictatorship since he sees that as being a more on, honest form of governance insofar as it's sort of saying like, look, politics is kind of like about persuasion and force and force is like at the bottom of this. Like if you, you need eventually perhaps to coerce people to do things and like that's what stands behind law is the capacity for coercion. Um, I mean, hopefully people just do good things, but you know, a lot of times they don't. Um, and well, so then to tie this background to something Kryptos was saying a little bit, although maybe hopefully this doesn't go too far afield, but no. um, I've been reading some like romantic poetry recently and I kind of despise reading lyric poetry, but I started to like it in light of some things that Camille Paglia was saying, like in her book, uh, Burn, Break, Blow. Um, man, I, well, never mind. I'm not going to attack Tolkien, but like, well, I got more <laughs> out of three pages of Paglia's interpretation of a Wordsworth poem than I did out of like, Tolkien's commentary on Beowulf. This is probably a me problem. This is a skill problem. This is not Tolkien's fault. And maybe that's not, that book wasn't even meant to be published. His son just published it. So that, that should not be okay. But it seemed like Pallia kind of like sets out a kind of thing of like, so the romantic sees the modern world as suffocating in some sense, because of things, well, that Kryptos could probably speak better to than I can with respect to technique and technology being a big part of what's suffocating. Uh, our lives. And then there's like this sudden like longing for a way out, like some kind of ideal past or some kind of place that never really was quite as good as you think that it is, as you're thinking about it. Um, like you just imagine like, well, it was, it must've been perfect in Sparta. Like I would have been totally at home there in every respect, even though like we'd probably all, you know, poop our pants if we were in Sparta and, you know, we died like really quickly, but 
but whatever. So you imagine this ideal place, but then you're like, oh, I can't get there. And so then, so it like then gets sublimated into something like a longing to just destroy everything that is, or it becomes something like the safer version in a way is something like emotional authenticity. And, and so like, I don't know how much romantic authenticity is ultimately compatible with or in full agreement with Heideggerian authenticity. I haven't read Heidegger in a while, so I, I can't speak to that, but, but something like the, the emotions or like the core of what a human being is and sort of letting your reason go, because that's probably what society told you. That's what at least the romantic poet would say, whereas like your emotions can't be faked. And so somehow they're supposed to be a better guide. And that that's kind of like a naive view that forgets that probably your emotions are modulated by the regime. Like the fact that you feel angry about certain things, and not angry, those may not be very authentic reactions. And those very well could be conditioned. So there's a lot to say about that. So maybe I'll, I'll step off uh, and see what, what you guys have to say about this. The, the question is, is interesting um, in that th this notion of, like as Heidegger talks, I think Heidegger's key insight into technology, excuse me, and, and one that um, Ellul picks up on different ways is this notion of in framing. Um, and I'm writing a piece right now that's been a little bit about like pulling teeth, but um, where we, this this notion of technology completely in, in frames us. And so, that, for example, the way that Alul describes, so when you use a tool, a hand tool, for example, and you're making something, yeah, you're using a tool. So it's technically, it's a machine kind of thing. Um, it's technique, but it's often organic technique. It's embedded and it's often learned through apprenticeship, this sort of thing. And then, but you have a feel for the material, for the wood, the knowledge is, is internal. And then you begin to take steps away from that, right? So um, maybe you get power tools, or then you have a machine that does most of the work for you. You just basically, you're handling the material, but all you're doing is feeding it into the machine. And then the next step of abstraction is you're sitting in a room, you know, looking through a window or with cameras, and you're watching the materials being fed in automatically, and you're just, you know, working on a monitor. And so you're you're making things, quote unquote, but your relationship to the material is is completely abstract. And I think that the modern era has done this in our relationship to God. And this is the 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 point that Ian McGilchrist made. Ian McGilchrist. Um, in The Master and the Emissary was that by focusing on the rational, the technical, scientific, that we've actually let go of the intuitive side of our brain and it is kind of withered. That's the, the Julian Jaynes um, argument in the, uh, the bicameral mind, is that um, as we've become more rational, more technologized, as we've embraced, you know, the linear thinking of the printed text and so forth is that the price that you pay is that you're no longer able to intuit the divine or the metaphysical, that that ability actually withers. And so you can no longer, con you, you can no longer contact God because you have technical power. And that was Julian Jane's um, thesis in the bicameral mind. Um, 
And I think, you know, Walter Ong in orality and literacy and the the presence of the word does something very similar, not quite as extreme, but he monitors the changes between orality and literacy and the, you know, how your understanding of history moves from when you have to remember it all the time in song to being able to write it down. Um, Plato notes these differences. It's been a while since um, where he talks about the corrupting influence of the written text on your ability to remember um, the stories and the poems and so forth, right? Um, hmm. So th even they were seeing these changes in 400 BC as writing began to become more prevalent among the elite classes, that it was changing how they think. So then you progress it forward and you bring in something like the printing press and, and all of these other changes. And now you arrive in a technical society where you're completely inframed. So then, you know, what do you, how do you break out? I guess is the question. And so, um, Augusto del Noche, and I really have to thank Carlo Lancelotti for doing the translation work and introducing um, del Noche to English audiences, but. Um, uh, in the crisis of modernity, Del Noche and also oh, the new one that I'm reading, um, he he notes two basic orientations, right? He says because he says both fascism and um, in a sense Marxist liberalism, capitalism are are on two sides. Both are essentially materialist, and both operate in a post-Nietzschean. God is dead kind of world, right? And so what, and, and the nice thing about Del Noce is he takes fascism seriously as a school of thought, right? And so, so he argues that these two thought, these two, two modes of thinking are essentially the same, right? So he says, what they want to do is sweep away the present order to grasp at a utopia. So that's in a sense you 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 smash apart the modern frame that this inframing that you're in, and then the one tries to build utopia through a a like a future utopia that is yet to come. So once we sweep away the present, then you know as Marx says, then 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 the the present or the future can emerge. We don't know what it's going to be yet, but we have to sweep away the present order, and then that will allow it it to emerge. Right. So that's that future utopia. Progressive is building towards that. Um, you know, the market economy is also, in a sense, future utopian. If we if we just let the market play out, everybody will be wealthy and utopia will result, right? So it's a future utopian to you. On the other hand, you have fascism, which says that, no, there was an ideal time in the past that must be recovered. So, but we still need to sweep away the present order and then we can then recover this past. Now, what... Del Noche argues, he says that when the fascist is trying to recover myth and mythos, he's not recovering it authentically because those myths are essentially dead. He's recovering them in a post-Nietzschean world. So in a world where God is already dead, right? So, and this is, I guess, the essential, and this is in, in Carlo Lancelotti and commenting on, um, on um, Del Noche's work, in one of the videos makes this point in regards to vitalism that he says vitalism falls into this camp in a sense of trying to reinvigorate these old mythologies that are technically dead 
um, that they have no connection to. And so you have this kind of, um, in that sense, it's a materialist uh, world in the sense to break out of the current frame, to sweep away the present order, to attack it with, you know, with beauty and with the, you know, the pirate lifestyle or whatever. So you sweep away the present order and then you reestablish the, the power of these old Greek myths, right? So he says, these are your basically two hours. Now, on the one hand, too, um, um, just to be, you know, you have to really say Protestantism falls actually into that camp of an early, you know, kind of a proto-fascism in a sense that it's a past utopianism. So it wants to sweep away the current corrupt order and then re-invivify the, the original apostolic order, which is what the, the pretense of what it was being done, right? So we're going to recover the originalist apostolic order in the present. Um, so now what Del Noche argues then as a Catholic is that to break free from both of these, he says, you have to look for living tradition. And he says, where do you find living tradition is, is in the living tradition of the church. Now, he goes so far as to talk about an ontologism, and I think he's correct in this. And this is, comes down to this, this um, when you're talking about, you know, BAP trying to break through the framework and recover some of this vitality and so forth. What, what, what Del Noche says is that ultimately, um, we revivify things in the, in the encounter with the divine in the present. So Kant would argue that um, th this encounter is closed off to you, that there's no rational content there in this encounter. And what Del Noche argued is that, yes, in this encounter with, with the divine, in the present, in frame or within tradition, within a living tradition, so it's not like recovering something dead from the past. So in this living tradition, you meet God, and in this meeting with God, there is real content that can then be um, unfolded, opened up. Um, in a sense, it revivifies, um, you know, life as a community that way. And I think he's fundamentally right that the and and this is, I think, something that you were talking about earlier, Montana, in 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 terms of. Um, you know, how do we then, you know, revivify our, our society, our culture? And this, I think, this is in the end what, what Del Noche turns to is in a sense of rejection of both of the, the major sort of post-Nietzschean streams that we live in within our society. Mm -hmm. So it ultimately becomes a mystical journey in a sense that the way um, forward or the way to break the deadlock, the Gordian knot between fascism and Marxism or fascism and literal is to encounter God within the living tradition of the church directly like the direct mystical encounter with God. And I think he's fundamentally correct. Yeah. That's interesting. So, yeah. So I don't know. Well, there's a lot to say. So maybe it's, and it's probably the first time you hear something, right? <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, I wonder if uh, Dugan was reading Del Noche when, because he, he more or less, I mean, seems to say that liberalism, communism, and fascism are all fundamentally similar in as much as they're all ineluctably modern. And in some sense, like all kind of are somewhat progressive, even if fascism wants to rely on some like mythos from the past that's sort of, I don't know, sucking it in and trying to combine it with um, something else. And 
I was listening to this uh, podcast. I think it's called Getting Ready for Rome. But it's like old retired uh, Strauss. It's pretty interesting. But he had a, a a session on Mussolini or several sessions on Mussolini. But that Mussolini, in order to make it so that some of the like more impressive buildings, he wanted to make some of the more impressive buildings visible from farther away than they would have been in Rome. And so like a lot of buildings got cleared away by uh, Ambler's account. And he thought that this was like a big mistake or kind of misunderstanding of the classical intent, which was that you should walk through these winding streets and you don't even know that you're about to encounter this kind of big majestic building. And then when you do, it kind of pops out almost like it's something divine. And that by like making somehow the gods totally present, you know, to use the metaphor here, um, and always perceptible from like almost any distance, it kind of makes it like less mysterious or less powerful when you encounter it because I don't know, some kind of like contempt for familiarity or, or something it's like breaking the metaphor or explaining the joke. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, yeah, I wonder if Dugan was like, I guess that's like two different things. Um, I but, unfortunately have not, you know, there's, there's only so many things that you can read in so much time, but Dugan is one that, that um, I've, um, I thought, oh, should I, shouldn't I? And I've just, one of these days I'm going to have to dive in and read some Dugan because he does seem different, but interesting. You were going to say to Oren McIntyre did a like five or six part series with Michael Millerman on oh, yes. book that came out. So I uh, did listen to that, which is, that was part of what got me thinking because Millerman is, is quite good actually. Yes. On, uh, on yeah, the only online school that's better than Montana classical college is Millerman. <laughs> I some, I hope to overcome him someday, but right now there, it, it would just be a lie to say that, uh, our often <laughs> Are more complete or better than his right now. So I I I like Millerman a lot. Yeah, Millerman's good that way. It's you know, and I think this is kind of the thing too. You know, it, it's good that we have. I I like writing Substack. Um, I like these long form conversations. Um, and and Twitter. The thing about Twitter that's that's interesting. It's it is, um, it, it's similar to preaching in some ways where. Um, you know, you have 20 minutes up on the pulpit and, you know, people often see you, I get done preaching and people will say, well, you didn't say this. You didn't say that. You know, why didn't you tell them about this? There, now, there's this other passage here that would moderate what you're saying, you know, there or whatever. And I, I said, yeah, but I wasn't preaching on those passages. I said, so a lot of times is you, you're, we're going to take this passage, we're going to paint it with a big brush. And we're going we're gonna to focus on this one thing and we're going to get in, get out, and we're going to, um, in that sense, enlarge it for you without nuance. And in some ways, Twitter is really good for that because you're forced to use, you know, 240 characters or, you, you know, like me often do these like effort threads. But nobody looks at the second or third or 10th or 20th tweet unless the first one hits, right? And so the idea is, is that, you pierce something and you hit on something and you you without nuance and you you turn up the volume and you poke right and that's often you know where your most at least for me anyways my most successful tweets are and of course once you poke a bear of course everybody just starts to set their hair on fire and run around in circles and um has fun that way um but it 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 serves a purpose, I think, that way too. When you can say things like, 
Okay, for example, like the 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 young man, I think it's a young man who who put his tweet out, you know, this is my ideology. Well, it poked me. <laughs> right? So I poked back. Right? And so I think there there is something to that um that that poking that can occur in Twitter where you can the the force of of an economy of language um forces you to um Take an idea and completely isolate it without any nuance and just hammer it, bam. And then it 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 has that effect of smashing something, and then you have all the pieces laying around, and now you can you just watch everybody try to pick everything up. And I think, you know, like as you get into somebody like like that, there's a lot of depth to it as well. And even in the vitalist movement, there's a lot of depth. I remember now the one thing that I was going to talk about. I think we should probably not leave here without at least, and if you guys have to go, that's fine. But I think you you fold in, vitalism is, is much, much easier to deal with as long as we're talking about working out, eating well, the lust for life. You know, as long as that, in my regard, is put under the hierarchy of, of being properly oriented with a proper telos, um, you know, where it's um, the idea is that you're it, it's subordinated to the pursuit of of union with God. That's wonderful. Right. Um, you know, your body should. I mean, if you don't get enough sleep, it's going to be very hard to pray. If you're unhealthy, it's going to be very, very hard to pray. If you eat poorly, it's going to be hard to pray. You know, all of these other things. Right. Um, if you're physically not fit, it gets much harder to pray. Right, you constant, you know, so these types of things. So, from a Christian perspective, there's a lot of value in these in these vitalist lessons to say you should be lifting, you should be running, you should or whatever, you know, the, and being active. You should eat well um, because the the stuff that's going into your foods is killing you as a person. You know, the microplastics, the hormones, all the rest of it, right? The the seed oils are are just destroying your health. And you know, you should be getting a good night's rest every night. Um, these types of things. Um, God and Sabbath are a thing. So there is that. But the one piece that I think really, um, at least on the in the Bible, is this notion of violence, right? So Christianity is looked at as quote unquote feminine. And so the amp up is that Christianity has to be rejected because um it doesn't embrace you know the violent side of life. And now, I have written at length on, on this notion, but I think this is the one area where people are sort of say, well, you know, Christians are all a bunch of pansies and they're just, they want to be pushovers, turn the other cheek and just get mowed under and, and fed to the lions, right? And in this regard, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about the faith, but I thought, I don't know whether you have any thoughts about this, Montana or not, and but I think that this aspect is one of these things when you talk about vitalism that you have to deal with is this, you know, the, the warrior figure, you know, Mars, the god Mars and so forth, um, you know, pursuing that type of, you know, the bloodlust and violence is, is essential to, to, to us as men and you need to grasp it and fill yourself full of it, that type of thing. Yeah, I don't, <clears throat> there's a lot to say. I mean, ugh. so I won't claim to speak exactly for what I think that Bab would say about this kind of thing, and maybe just a kind of general statement about vitalism. Well, maybe, maybe he would agree with this. I don't know. But it seems like it's highly like circumstantial, like just in the sense that 
there's like no categorical imperatives of idolism. I mean, it seems like getting strong and beautiful is the closest it gets to having some sort of like rules of like, no, you should always try to do something along those lines. You like, you should be at least capable of danger, but I mean, at least like in, you know, various vitalist group chats and things like that. I think there's like a very clear, I don't know, kind of like when people come into the chats and say like, we need to do something, you know, and they start like fed posting or something like that. Oh, it's yeah. like a really quick, like get this person out of here. Like this is not, I don't know. So it's a kind of interesting relationship with violence in that like, yeah, there's figures uh, that are like talked about, like in the third part of bronze age mindset that like, Rabat praises their carelessness, you know, that like they don't look around and like see a bunch of like, oh, these beings don't have dignity. They're just like they could be swept away or something. So in that sense, it's like there are passages where it's like, whoa, like this purifying fire uh, would kill a lot of ensouled beings. You know, and that seems like kind of terrifying. I don't want the zoos to be open. I don't want to fight against the lion right now, um, maybe ever. But like I just it's not. But so it, it is weird to see the interplay that on one hand somehow under the right circumstances from the vitalist perspective, violence is good, but at least on our, under our current circumstances, anything I've ever seen in BAP or any vitalist that I take seriously say has been a, at the local level, you know, you should not be starting fights. I mean, you should be able to defend yourself and things like that. And then at the international level, it seems like the vitalists, and he talks about this, even in bronze age mindset should be highly interested in non-interference. Like, the U.S. should not be a part of forever wars. This is a giant mistake. And it seems like if or to the extent that vitalism has played a role in shaping like some of the America first kind of things, it seems like it's pushed them towards like, no, we should not be in these wars. Like we don't really have a good reason to fight a war. We don't even have like at this stage, like a very good military to like fight the wars. I mean, there's a lot to say about that, but the, the know-how and the physical capital of like the military and like the COVID purges more or less of like a lot of like patriotic guys, uh, with them all having to get the jab or whatever. So I don't know. Maybe that's not a great answer to it, but it does seem like anything I've seen him say is like in the present moment, violence would be a gigantic mistake uh, at the same time that you should prepare yourself should mm, some sort of like crucial moment emerge. But I don't know. I, some, I don't know if that answered your question very well or not. I think, you had something to say too? Yeah, I think violence, like, you know, i not the expert on the vitalist side, but it seems like, when the violence is okay because really everyone has a set of ideals of when violence is okay and when it's not i mean progressives are pretty upfront about this we have the whole border thing going on right now and there's all the general sherman posting which first of all he wouldn't like you so stop but also like everyone has the circumstances where they think violence is okay and even christians you know have particular different christian traditions have had different particular interpretations of when violence has been okay there have been pacifist Christians. They're actually in the minority. Um, the There's been Christians like, and, you know, obviously their legacy is debatable or, or whatever, but like Constantine the Great. Um, but to me, when you're looking at the vitalist interpretation of it, it feels like it's really tied really closely with glory. And so, yes, like when you look at um, Julius Caesar, when he was stabbed in the Roman Senate, um, People, this is, you know, it's a small detail, so people leave it out because it's really about Brutus's betrayal and Caesar's tragic death and everything like that. But everyone forgets that Caesar was about to go on a military campaign, and he was 55 or 56 when he was about to embark on this military campaign, and he didn't, he didn't need to go. He, he had already consolidated what was in the empire. But a lot of people 
and well, not a lot, but some historians speculate that the reason he wanted to go on this last expedition, I think it was going to be to Parthia, perhaps, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but the reason he wanted to go on this last expedition is because he wanted to die in battle and in glory and fighting for Rome. And, you know, it would make him uh, an eternal hero of the empire, which, you know, Augustus did that for him after the fact. But that was how he wanted to die. He obviously didn't want to die as a tragic figure in his own toga and his own blood in the Senate four. Um, so maybe that's, maybe that's like a historical, a historical precedent we could look at for like when violence is okay from the vitalist lens. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, uh, MTC. Well, so I mean, yeah, like for me, I mean, I come at it purely from a Christian perspective, right? So it, you, you, you frame violence. First of all, there's, there's the personal side of it, right? Which is, um, you know the 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 call to the 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 general call to nonviolence, and I think we we frame this within the larger frame of God's intent for the universe. So when we were placed in the garden, there is this sense that violence really wasn't what God intended for His creatures for for humanity, and so the fall into sin then. You know, the, what happens right next, brother against brother, there's resentment and one kills the other. And then, you know, his blood is crying out from the earth. So there is this sense immediately that the first thing that happens after the garden, resentment leads to murder and um, God is unhappy with this. Right. And then so you sort of um, but we don't we live in an, in a in a world of sin. And. You know, there is this recognition that there are different roles. So me as a general person is in a different place than we might say the role of the king who is entrusted by God to wield the sword um, on behalf of maintaining order in society. So there's a role of violence, sort of an official role of violence in, um, you know, as, as like that Romans 13 of punishing the wrongdoer, right? So of maintaining justice, punishing the wrongdoer, but also then of defending the people. So now in the Protestant tradition, we have this thing, you know, everybody is, you know, prophet, priest, and king. The archetypes exist there for everybody, right? So somebody breaks into your house and you defend your family, you know, you're embracing that archetype of the protector king in your home, right? So there's a, so in that sense, there there's, we, we generally get stuck on these Kantian ethics and a lot of Christians do it. Well, it's, you know, Jesus says, you know, turn the other cheek and this becomes for them like a Kantian universal that's applied. It's portable and it's applied every situation for all times. And they can't see the nuance that's in a long history of Christian tradition that says, no, there, there is a, in a sinful world, there's a place for violence. There's there's different roles for different people, and there's different circumstances that then require you to step into and walk into these different archetypes. And so a lot of people misunderstand both Christians and non-Christians. And unfortunately, oftentimes the 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 non-violent, I mean, there's a long tradition of non-violence in the in the Christian faith, and there's a long tradition within the Christian faith of a more nuanced, what we would call the just war tradition, which is kind of a misnomer, but has a more nuanced understanding of violence in a sinful in 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 a sinful world. In post, you know, it's official, it's personal, but I think a lot of times, if you think about it in terms of archetypes, it makes a lot more sense that way of what your choice might be in the moment. 
And so for me, in a sense, like, yeah, I think that a lot of the, the critiques of the these these young men that are saying, you know, Christians don't lust for glory. Well, maybe they don't, but Christians are also capable of doing what's necessary in a sinful world when necessity demands it, when the circumstances demand that you step up and protect your people, when the circumstances or the role that God has given you demands that you punish the wrongdoer with violence, that you maintain order in your society with violence, that these things are then, you will be able to stand before God and then, you know, um, to say like, and this is the, the, the blessings of grace that we have too. And to say that, yes, Lord, I know that this is not what you intended for your creation. This is the role that you put me. And I stand before you, um, you know, I'm at your mercy and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Right. And so that's kind of the space that you walk in. It's a nuanced space, but I mean, again, Twitter doesn't love nuance. And, and a lot of people who are critical of the Christian faith in that regard from, as I think it was you, um, whichever one of you said, you know, that, that, is that question that lust for glory? Um, I think they misunderstand the the proper place for for violence within the Christian tradition. Mm -hmm.